May 5th. Happy Cinco de Mayo, everybody. And for all my colleagues out there, Cookstown University and the State System of Higher Education, happy end of the last week of classes. Yes, we still got finals week ahead, but it is the last week of classes, which means like, woo, and at the same time, the work goes nuts now, because now it's all the final grading and everything like that. But here we are. Here we are. Welcome to Raging Chicken's Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week, we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Seriously, as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress right now, today, right now. Why are you waiting? Just right now. You can also help out this show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you'll know every time that we go live. And if you're one of our awesome podcast listeners, make sure to leave us that five-star review on whatever platform you listen to. Leave a comment, let other folks know why you listen to the show. Little things like this. I cannot emphasize this so much. Little things like this help other people find the show, right? Enjoying our little community here. It's really fantastic. Use your people call. my people call. There you go. Anyways, we cannot let uh, Paul Martino, Moms for Liberty, and their oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community, everybody. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly rooted community pack, a truly community rooted pack. There you go. <laughs> to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Well, on today's show, four Proud Boys, including their leader, Enrique, Enrique Tario, were convicted of seditious conspiracy for their involvement in the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. That's big news. Well, the corruption doesn't stop when it comes to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. The reporting in the Washington Post this week exposed that Leonard Leo, the architect of the right-wing legal juggernaut, the Federal Society, instructed Kellyanne Conway to use her nonprofit organization to pay Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, you know, that right-wing conservative activist, to pay her tens of thousands of dollars. Then Leo told Conway, hey, I'm going to give you all this money. I'm going to make a donation to your nonprofit, which means Leonard Leo gets a tax write-off. I'm going to do- donate this money to your nonprofit, and you are going to pass that on to Ginny Thomas. However, shh, leave her name off all the paperwork. 
pretty crazy. Now, that reporting comes on the heels of revelations by ProPublica that billionaire Harlan Crow paid the private school tuition for Thomas's great-nephew, Thomas was raising, quote, as a son. Thomas did not disclose the tuition payments as part of his legal obligations to do so. If we're talking at least tens of thousands of dollars, right? Upwards of $150,000. No corruption there. Crazy. North Carolina becomes the latest state to try to further restrict abortion. Republican majority uh, passed a new 12-week abortion ban, but the state's Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, says he'll veto the legislation. Bernie Sanders unveils a new bill that he calls that calls for an increase of the federal minimum wage to $17 an hour. Meanwhile, in the ebb and flow of justice and injustice, meanwhile, Iowa becomes the latest state to roll back labor protections for children because we want to protect the children. Now allowing for children as young as 14 to work in roofing, construction, demolition, light manufacturing, and even assisting customers with fireworks. How about that? 16 and 17-year-olds will also be able to use or serve alcohol in restaurants. Great. Because parents. The bill joins similar ones being passed in Arkansas and Missouri that are part of a push by conservative lobbying, lobbying groups. Because of course, because it's all about the children. The labor market is going strong as unemployment declines to 3.4%, adding $253,000 jobs. I'm sorry. Republican frontrunner from North Carolina governor was found to be, you know, mocking school shooting survivors. And he even once justified shooting protesters. There is one stand-up guy. Little organization by calling itself the Freedom Foundation is holding a conference in Denver this July. And that conference, guess what it's going to do? It's going to train right-wing school board activists, anti-union teachers, and will, you know, make sure everybody knows how to deliver a whitewash curriculum. Free of CRT, LGBTQ, you know, women probably, I'm sure. Let's see. A little closer to home was a big week in Pennsylvania this week as PA House passed a bill that would add LGBTQ protections to the state's non-discrimination law. All right, this is a bill that has been, uh, they have been, uh, it's been written 22 years ago. And then it finally got passed out of committee and then got voted through on the House floor. Right, now that goes to the state Senate, we're going to see, there's actually some people saying this may go. And as I talked a little bit on the show on Monday, Moms for Liberty is holding their conference in Philadelphia this summer ahead of this year's school board and municipal elections. That's going to be something. And criticism of President of, of uh, Thomas Jefferson Hospital, Mark Tykowinski, Tykowinski, Tykosinski, Tykosinski. Well, those criticisms blew up this week following revelations that he's out of a habit of liking tweets that questioned the science behind COVID and called gender reassignment surgery child mutilation. He's like, I, I didn't know. I was liking it and I was just bookmarking it for later. I didn't know that. I didn't know what, what I was doing. That's his, that's his defense. Oh, in today's kind of last cultural call or whatever, uh, the artificial intelligence uh, pioneer, Jeffrey Hinton, 
Well, he left Google to warn us about the potential dangers of rapidly deploying AI. I think is uh, I think he when he was looking at AI, I think this is what he said. I'm glad the end of the world is working out well for someone. Yes, indeed, indeed. Crazy, crazy. Well, for more PA Progressive Talk, tune in to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, or Facebook. Subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Head on over to the RickSmithShow.com for the latest across all those platforms. And you got to check out Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast if you haven't already. Amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast. Rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. If you haven't heard The Signal is a new podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, and is produced by yours truly. Twice a month, The Signal will shine a light on right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community towards calmer, saner, progressive roots. Uh, new episode just dropped this past week. Uh, more on the school board craziness. you got to check it out. Uh, head on over to buckscountybeacon.podbean.com to get it directly or subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Attention all you gamers out there. The Game Inn, with two N's, The Game Inn is a Quaker Town-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show. They've got everything for Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops, and kids get discounts with every A on the report card. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at at TheGameIn. That's with two N's. Got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get? Shoot them a message or drop them an email at TheGameInPA at gmail.com. And a shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Day Man. That's with two N's, at Song of Day Man on Twitter. We've got some good shows coming up and Out to Coop Live. Um, this coming Monday, May 8th, I welcome Mark Engler to the show. Mark is a Philly-based writer and author of This is an Uprising, How Nonviolent Revolt is Shaping the 21st Century. He is also a member of the editorial board at Descent Magazine. We'll be talking about his latest article, Can Movements Keep Politicians from Inevitably Selling Out, which appears in the most recent issue of Dissent, and you can check it out at The Forge and Waging Nonviolence as well. And then the following week, on May 15th, I welcome Christina Marusik to the, back to the show. We're going to be talking about her brand new book, A New War on Cancer, The Unlikely Heroes Revolutionizing Prevention. Christina is an award-winning Pittsburgh-based journalist who covers environmental health and justice for Environmental Health News. You remember that we had her back on the show back in 2021 talking about her investigative series, Fractured, about the impact of fracking on people and their bodies in Southwest PA communities. Look, everybody, we want a progressive future. We need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches homegrown progressive media today by becoming a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as 5 bucks a month. Simply go to patreon.com slash rcpress. We're here for the fight, and we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Well, how's everybody doing? Uh, I don't know about you, but in my neck of the woods, it looks like the rain is uh, beginning to... Uh, find its way out into the Atlantic, finally. Um, we got some sunny weather today for the first time in a while, although it is like 
It is like unexpectedly cold in my house this morning, especially in my little basement area that I'm coming to you at today. So I've got like layers on, blankets around here. I've already had a full day. I already had a doctor's appointment at eight o'clock this morning. Already been out and about, uh, you know, up at five, getting the kids' lunches ready, go to the doctor's appointment, come back, and here I sit. And then when I get off here, yes, it is going to be grading time extraordinaire as the end of my semester has has come, and now it's a matter of grading papers. Right, um, some good stuff this year. I'm very psyched. Um, so let's, let's, let's just jump into it. Um, yeah, the big news that we had four members of the Proud Boys, including Enrique Tario, were convicted on Thursday, right? They were convicted of seditious conspiracy um, regarding their role in plotting the insurrection on January 6th, right? Um, now, this is the, uh, was the final of three cases, right, that led to uh, um, three sedition cases that federal prosecutors have brought back, had brought against key figures in the Capitol attack. Um, and that's a big deal. Um, sedition charges are seditious conspiracy, excuse me. Um, charges are not easy to prove. Um, you have to have some pretty um, solid evidence, and uh, they did. So... What was interesting about the case of Enrique Tario, Enrique Tario, is that basically um, it's kind of signaled in a certain way that um, they're willing to go after the planners um, of the coup, right? Of the coup attempt, I should say, right? Because um, Enrique Tario was actually not in D.C. Um, at the Capitol at the time um, of Jan the January 6th insurrection, um, but. What this showed is that, no, they recognized that his role in planning that, planning it logistically, strategizing, and so on, um, and he was convicted on that charge. I'm sure this is not the last that we're going to hear about this, but that is a, that was a fairly, you know, fairly decent big deal um, that we just saw. So that's a good thing, I think. Um, the other thing is just, man, I'll tell you, this, uh, this Clarence Thomas is – Something else, I'll tell you. Um, this is the kind of thing where, you know, if if there were folks out there who were still like, yeah, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, Supreme Court, you know, yeah, they have some problems, but, you know, there's still a legitimate thing like this. I mean, it's getting harder and harder to um, – really support the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, this particular version of it. And, you know, there was a really good show on the Majority Report this past Wednesday uh, with Ian Milheiser. Um, Ian Milheiser, I've talked about him on the show uh, before. I think he's uh, a phenomenal, he's like one of the Supreme Court, people I go to on the Supreme Court to read the Supreme Court to understand not just what's at stake in, a partic in particular Supreme Court cases, but also understand the history of the court. Um, he wrote a, a book, I want to say it was, oh my God, suddenly started yawning like crazy. Um, uh, I believe it was 2015 called Injustices, which uh, it was one of those books that kind of, you know, disabused me of, of any kind of rosy picture I had in my head of the Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, and I first remember hearing about it actually on the Rick Smith show because uh, yeah, Ian Milheiser would come on the Rick Smith show over the years. And I remember when his book was first coming out, 
him talking about um, the perceptions of the Supreme Court, in particular among kind of like, you know, kind of at then mainstream American history or progressives and the views of progressives and stuff. And it was a view that I had grown up with, right? The idea that the Supreme Court was a force of good, right? That it kind of, you know, overturned segregation. It did, you know, you had civil rights legislation and it was upholding these things and, and it was kind of striking down discrimination. So, and I, I, you know, so when I was, when I was, you know, coming up as a kid and learning that there was that, that feeling the Supreme Court was a guardian of justice, right? That helped support that, you know, the MLK's famous thing, like, you know, the arc of history um, is long, but bends towards justice, right? As long as there's people tugging on it and that Supreme Court was one of those forces. However, Ian Milheiser um, in Injustices and when he had his appearances at the Rick Smith show back in 2015 and before, um, basically it told a different history, right? Said actually that was an aberration in the history of the Supreme Court. Matter of fact, the the bulk of, of the bulk, uh, most of the time, most of the history of the Supreme Court has been one of um, backlash, right? And protecting the rights of the privileged, not of the people. Um, and so that's a really fascinating one. So anyways, he was on, um, he was on uh, the majority report this week and, you know, really just basically saying, like, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what you do, like, how you talk about, a, like, a, a legitimate Supreme Court here, especially when he said that, you know, look, the Supreme Court has always been a political um, entity, and that's one thing, right? And there's problems with that. He says, but this is the first time in kind of our lifetimes, at least, where the Supreme Court has become a strictly partisan court, Right. So there's no, no, you know, if somebody is, I mean, you know, if you, you, you have Republicans and Democrats on the court. <clears throat> right. So and what Ian Milheiser said, like, if that's going to be the case, if it is going to be a purely partisan thing, why are we what's the purpose of it? We already have a partisan legislature. Right. We already have representative democracy there. The, diff the only difference between what we have in the legislature and Congress versus what we have in the Supreme Court is that the Supreme Court, the justices are not accountable through democratic means. Right. You can't recall them. So, you know, this these revelations about, um, you know, what's happening with 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 uh, Clarence Thomas right now are just are pretty nuts. Like, I mean, if you look at this, like, so, for example, um, Leonard Leo, as we've talked about on the show quite a bit, if you recall, when uh, Alyssa Bowen is on the show, we're frequently uh, basically tracking, or she, I should say, her research and her organization, True North Research, are tracking, you know, the influence of people like Leonard Leo, the, um, you know, he's the founder, one of the key people, the founders of the Federal Society, um, he is oh, the kind of the key architect of the plan to basically um, control the Supreme Court um, by basically grooming uh, uh, right-wing justices um, into this particular mindset so that they carry out this, um, this you know, what appears to be a consistent judicial strategy, but which is, is a highly ideological one um, that Leonard Leo has helped ushering in. Well, so we've been talking about him. And so Leonard Leo... Um, he has been paying, say, tens of thousands of dollars 
um, to Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas. Um, you know, through this, these networks of nonprofits, right? So I'll read you this, this part from the Washington Post. Um, so in January 2012, Leo instructed the GOP pollster Kellyanne Conway to bill a nonprofit group he advises and use that money to pay Virginia, Ginny Thomas, the document show, right? So actually, I got that backwards, I think, in the, uh, in the uh, I'm sorry, I, I think I misspoke then in the intro, right? It wasn't uh, Kelly, Kellyanne Conway's nonprofit, right? Um, it was his nonprofit, my bad. Um, so to build a nonprofit group he advises and uses use that money to pay Ginny Thomas um, and to pay Ginny Thomas. Um, and these are in documents that have been reviewed by the Washington, Repo- the Washington Post. That same year, the nonprofit, the Judicial Education Project, filed a brief before the Supreme Court in a highmark voting rights case. So this is the deal, right? This is where this is kind of, you know, the corruption. Um, that So this is 2012. The Judicial Education Project filed a brief to the Supreme Court in the voting, this landmark voting rights case, which basically, like, ended the, uh, um, uh, or rolled back voting rights in this country um, significantly. And $25,000 was paid by one of the groups filing that brief, Judicial Education Project, which was uh, one of the groups that um, Leonard Leo advises, given to Ginny Thomas, right? In that time, of course, the, the, you know, the wife of the Supreme Court Justice. Now, Leo, a key figure in a network of nonprofits that has worked to support nominations of conservative justice, told Conway that he wanted to, to give Ginny Thomas quote, another $25,000, unquote, the documents show. He emphasized that the paperwork should, quote, no mention, should have, quote, no mention of Ginny, of course, unquote. Conway's firm, the polling company, sent the Judicial Education Project a $25,000 bill that day. Per Leo's instructions, it listed the purpose as, quote, supplement for constitutional, constitution polling and opinion consulting, unquote, the documents show. In all, according to the documents, the polling company paid Thomas's firm, Liberty Consulting, $80,000 between June 2011 and June 2012, and expected to pay $20,000 more before the end of, the, of 2012. The documents reviewed by the Post do not indicate the precise nature of any work Thomas did for the, the Judicial Education Project or the polling company. The arrangements reveal that Leo, longtime Federal Society leader and friend of the Thomases, has functioned not only as an ideological ally of Clarence Thomases, but has also worked to provide financial remuneration to his family. And it shows Leo arranging for the money to be drawn from a nonprofit that soon would have an interest before the court. Right? I mean, that is like, that is every reason in the world why you do not want these kind of relationships, right? And any of this kind of stuff should have been reported. Of course, it has not been, right? So now we see the little bit behind the curtain of what's going on, right? And then we saw, right, um, in ProPublica, we found out that, uh, you know, uh, Clarence Thomas, you know, has been, who, you know, what I should say, ProPublica has been reporting for a while now for about, Clarence Thomas's relationship with Harlan Crow. They've been kind of breaking all these stories that shows Harlan Crow, who's this billionaire, um, has got a really cozy relationship with Clarence Thomas. Like 
paying for his vacations, paying for his private jet flights, and all this other kinds of stuff. All things that Clarence Thomas is supposed to report as part of financial disclosures of potential conflicts of interest, right? And of course, Clarence Thomas has not reported them, or he's only reported a few of them, right? It's very unclear as all the reporting, and nobody seems to have an answer for why he would report this one, but not all these other ones, right? Um, you know, I think that, you know, common sense dictates that he's not reporting all the other ones because if he showed like all the money that he's receiving and all the gifts that he's receiving, then uh, that would clearly uh, like, you know, send up flares that this is corruption, right? Well, this latest one was, it was a doozy, right? Um, I read a little bit from ProPublica here. In, 20, in 2008, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas decided to send his teenage grandnephew to Hidden Lake Academy, a private boarding school in the foothills of northern Georgia. The boy, Mark Martin, was far from home. For the previous decade, he had lived with the justice and his wife in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Thomas had taken legal custody of Martin when he was six years old and had recently told an interview that he was, quote, raising him like a son. Tuition in the boarding, at the boarding school ran more than $6,000 a month. But Thomas did not cover the bill. A bank statement from the school from July 2009, buried in unrelated court filings, shows the source of Martin's tuition payment for that month, the company of billionaire real estate magnate Harlan Crow. The payments extended beyond that month, according to Christopher Grimwood, a former administrator at the school. Crow paid Martin's tuition the entire time he was a student there, which was about a year, Grim told ProPublica. Quote, Harlan picked up the tab, unquote, said Grimwood, who had got to know Crow and the Thomases and had access to school financial information through his work as an administrator. Thomas did not report the tuition payments from Crow on his annual financial disclosures, and several years earlier, Thomas disclosed a gift of $5,000 for Martin's education from another friend. It is not clear why he reported that payment, but not Crow's. The tuition payments add to the picture of how the Republican mega-donor has helped fund the lives of Thomas and his family. Right, so this is not only do we have like Clarence Thomas basically setting the table for uh, the destruction of the 20th century uh, in there. You should remember Clarence Thomas is the one who wrote that dissent in and when they were overturning Roe v. Wade that was basically um, was one of the people got behind the dissent, I should say, about saying, you know, look, we don't no reason we should stop with Roe. There's all these other implications. There's all these other kind of cases that uh, aren't in the Constitution that we should really kind of be thinking about. Right? And so you've got you've got this billionaire dude, right, who is just funneling the Thomas's money, right, and you've got Leonard Leo, who's a right wing kind of legal activist. Right, who is you know marshalling the funds behind the the Federalist Society, um, and leading its ideological project to kind of overturn like you know initially the Supreme Court decisions of the 20th century, really. This, I mean, how how do you allow that to stand? You know. Now we also saw Neil Gorsuch, of course. Uh, we find that you know. You know, he had this, you know, parcel of land, it's real estate that, you know, wasn't moving, wasn't going anywhere. And then he becomes Supreme Court justice and boom, he was able to sell it for a million plus, right? So as these revelations come forward, right, from especially from all these conservative justices, this becomes increasingly more difficult um, to see the court as anything but uh, partisan hackery and a grift, 
And, you know, in my humble opinion, that is not what we need. <laughs> that is not what we need. Crazy. What else we got, too? So we saw new news coming out of North Carolina this week that uh, that the, the Republican-dominated legislature in North Carolina uh, had voted through uh, uh, another re- uh, abortion restriction. This time it was for a 12-week abortion ban. Now, uh, Republican, or I'm sorry, the uh, North Carolina's Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, says he's going to veto the legislation. And he's doing this interesting thing, too, as well. He's not just kind of, boom, and vetoing it immediately, right? He's basically um, holding it for the moment. Uh, and as I was reading about this, the strategy there is that doesn't want it to kind of just like disappear for the news cycle. He wants it now because, you know, this thing was, I want to say it was, let me see what it says. It only been introduced like a few days, I want to say before. Yeah, two days, right? So it says GOP lawmakers barreled uh, a bill through the state legislature to ban most abortions after 12 weeks of pregnancy, less than 48 hours after unveiling the proposal. This is in the Washington Post. So they have... um. So they basically put this proposal out for the ban, right, rushed to pass it through, right, where nobody really, you know, even like journalists and the media and the public certainly hadn't had a chance to really see what was in this bill. Um, And Cooper is basically said, no, I'm not just going to rubber, I'm not going to just like veto it right away. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this publicly. We're going to let people know about what's actually happening here, what was in this bill that they just passed, right, before I veto it. Right. It's a way of kind of like, you know, drawing you know, or, or turning some attention onto uh, what their strategies, what their tactics are. Um, <clears throat> so this is really interesting. Um, this is why I wanted to flag this here today. So even though this looks like it's going to be vetoed. Right. Um, here's the political battle yes to, yet to come, according to the Post. The bill passed the state Senate yesterday, setting up a showdown with Democratic Governor Roy Cooper, who vowed in an interview with 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 Caroline. I want to get letters. Okay, um, to veto the measure with a delay of up to ten days, so that the public could quote digest this very complicated, burdensome legislation that they haven't had a chance to even see unquote. And he's aiming to peel away moderates in order to thwart Republicans' veto-proof majorities in both chambers. So the idea is. Spend some time talking about this publicly, allow the public to really understand what's in this and what it can do. And then all those Republicans who are who would be part of the veto proof majorities in the uh, in the chambers and both in the House and the state Senate there. That those, quote unquote, moderate Republicans are ones who said that they are behind a women's right to choose. They are going to feel the pressure. Right. They, they can't just kind of like uh, vote along with their party. Right. To overdo this um, to set themselves up for election. No, they have to face their constituents to basically answer that question. Right. Answer the questions about are you going to vote for this bill? Are you going to strip these rights away? So that's going to be interesting. So here's the part. Um, what happens in North Carolina could have repercussions nationwide. The 12-week abortion limit, which is less restrictive than the near-total ban in effect in many GOP-led states, allows over 90% of abortions to continue. This is what's interesting about it. North Carolina Republicans say um, say that there was uh, that I'm sorry say that was in response to the political backlash to restrictions seen across the country, and they hope the measure they're framing as a quote-unquote mainstream alternative will become a model for the rest of the country. So. 
they're trying to play the reasonable track here, right? But nonetheless, right, this is a restriction. This is a further restriction. This is a kind of a winding it down. But notice a couple things in there. This is why it's it's interesting. We say they were they weren't going to follow along with their rest of their the nut job Republicans in other states who are passing these like six weeks uh, abortion bans because they recognize that there's a backlash and that puts them in political jeopardy. So here you go. So they're going to try to do this moderate thing. So to try to appease their base, right? Appease the kind of the rabid Republican base um, while kind of playing to a kind of moderate center. This is why this, what uh, the governor Roy Cooper is doing is actually a really cool strategy because it's going to basically put the pressure upon those people say, no, no, you don't get this kind of wiggle room. You are voting for abortion restrictions, period. Right? So there we go. So that's happened in North Carolina. In other good news, Bernie Sanders unveils a bill uh, for $17 an hour as a federal minimum wage, right? Um, that's a good news. Um, <clears throat> this is in uh, the uh, Pennsylvania Capital Star. Some article in there. So U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders announced on Thursday that Democrats plan to mark up legislation to increase the federal minimum wage, 17 bucks an hour, pointing to an increase in the cost of living. Outside the U.S. Capitol, Sanders, a Vermont independent and chairman of the Health and Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, said the panel will vote June 14th on a bill that would increase the federal minimum wage to of $7.25 an hour, which is what it is now, to $17 an hour over a five-year period. That goal is a $2 an hour increase over labor organizers past campaign of Fight for 15, because guess what? A lot, a lot of time has passed since that Fight for 15 campaign started, right? Um, it's great to see uh, Sanders putting this on the floor. And again, this is one of these examples of this is a fight worth fighting, right? Um, and, uh, you know, something that Democrats have, you know, shied away from, say, well, we don't think it's going to pass the Senate, then maybe we shouldn't even propose it. No. This is a way of driving your commitments right into um, into the media, but also more importantly, to basically uh, show who's standing in the way. Right. So that's good. So now pendulum goes back again in Iowa, latest state to roll back labor protections for children. Right. Children as long as young as 14 can now work in roofing, construction, demolition, light manufacturing and assisting customers in, with fireworks and so on. Right. 16 and 17 year olds can now serve alcohol. Right now, of course, all of this is, you know, with parental permission, of course. Right. But with parental permission, I mean, this is like, I mean, what are you, what are you talking about? Right. I mean, the, the, do you, do these people have any idea of what it took, right? The fights that it took. And it's interesting, you know, I'm reading, um, um, I'm reading this book. Uh, I got to pull up the title of it now. I think it's called oh wait actually i have it right here except actually i should say i'm listening to the book it's one of the books i've listened to on my uh on my commute um uh, i think it's called before the storm right but i just let me just double yeah before the storm uh before the storm by uh rick perlstein and uh it's the first of a series of books um from rick perlstein uh, the one the next one focuses on um Nixon land, I think it's what it's called, is uh, focusing on that kind of Nixon era. So this is actually the one focusing on the Goldwater era, and then there's the Nixon era, and then there's the Reagan era. And it's all, it's like the story of the development of kind of, say, right-wing conservative politics um, over this period of time. And it's really fascinating. It's a really good read. Uh, it's the kind of thing that's, uh, 
you know, puts in perspective uh, how long that this movement has been working. One of the things that was interesting is that in in one of the chapters, um, uh, Pearlstein, you know, talks about and writes about some of the history of uh, these really kind of right wing powerhouses, you know, and they're all associated with, you know, major manufacturers, major industries, they're all kind of, you know, you know, the, the capitalists who don't want anybody touching any of their money, they want to decide for themselves, right? They don't want their workers to have any rights, whatever. But they were also that a lot of these folks that were motivating and really pushing for uh, and supporting Goldwater in that campaign, and who were establishing this kind of right wing media network, um, reading this one part that's connected to the history of General Electric. Um, they were vehemently against child labor laws, right? They thought, you know, children should be made to work. They're also, as we've learned in recent episodes of The Signal, is the same people that were against public education, right? Because it would take children out of the workforce. And now we're living in an age where apparently there's been enough of historical amnesia of the atrocities that were kind of wrought upon the bodies of children through this industrial abuse of labor that they're willing to send them back to work. So there you go. Send those kids back up on the roof. Send those kids into the manufacturing plants. Yeah, let those kids sell fireworks. Put those kids those underage kids, put those undereducated uh, in bars and have them serve alcohol. Is that where you want your kid going? You know, I was thinking a lot about this. You know, I just like, it's been bugging me so much, right? And, uh, you know, all the stuff about the, you know, parental rights, parental rights, parental rights. And, you know, look, I think it's, I think it's time that we've got to say some very things pretty, pretty directly, right? Yeah, parents have the rights to do a lot of things, right? And parents do do a lot of things. You know, it, it's parental choice, right? There are parents out there, right? And let's just talk about this, right? There are parents out there who abuse their children. Should schools and workplaces and other parts of the community? Should we respect the parental, that parent's right to abuse their kids? Or not? Or do we make sure that schools are safe places and that we teach those kids, right? That it is part of the culture of our schools, part of the culture of our institutions that abuse is wrong, right? Seems right to me. Parents, religious right parents, have the right to believe that women have no place in the public, that they should be subservient to men. And those parents have the right, quote unquote, 
to raise their children in that way, to teach their sons that they are they can rightfully dominate women and to teach their daughters that they need to be submissive toward men. But our schools, should our schools, schools just respect that and allow those that, that boy that's raised in that family to, to demean and try to control other girls in the school because he is more than, and, and do we teach that girl who's been taught to be submissive that yes, that's right. That's her place because her parents say so, or do our schools support a democratic society in which every individual is valued and equal? And no one, whether it's because of the color of their skin, whether it's because of their gender, whether it's because of their role in society or how much money they have, no one gets to dominate someone else. Right? Parents, and I know there's parents out there, quite a few parents actually in my area, right, who have pretty horrific views when it comes to race. You could call it racism. And they have the quote-unquote right to teach their kids to be racist. Do we respect those parents' rights in school? Do we respect their racist teachings? Or do our schools teach that racism is fundamentally wrong and not allow for the discourse of racial superiority to dictate how kids behave or how kids get to participate. Do we set up schools as a space for the development of a healthy democratic society or do we give the parental rights of those parents because of their backward-ass, exploitive, horrific, violent policies or violent beliefs, do we allow them to dictate to the rest of us how our kids should learn? Does their decision to be racist and teach their kids to be racist at home does that give them the right to say we have to teach our kids to be racist too? Do they have because they have the right to be abusive at home, quote unquote right? Does that mean that they get to tell our kids that they should accept abuse? No. It's just like with this labor this this with this labor thing is the same thing. Because you might have some parents out there we think it's personally fine to take 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, right, send them into bars, in some cases working as late as 2 a.m., and I, if I believe this is the one policy, if that maybe that might be the uh, the Arkansas policy, maybe the 2 a.m., serving alcohol in establishments where, guess what? When people are in bars, especially like adults and gross, creepy old men, drink too much, and now you're going to put a 16-year-old in there feeding them that beer? 
How is that protecting the children that you're so concerned about? It's not. The reasons that we take our kids out of or have historically, the reason why we roll back child labor laws, because guess what? Children were dying. They were being killed and maimed. And in Pennsylvania, of all places, you better damn well remember that history. Remember the Breaker Boys. The kids that were sent into the coal shaft to separate out the rocks and the coal. Some of them getting sucked down there. The ones that were had that were responsible for trying to kind of hold open the door for the coal carts to come through. And very often the spring was so heavy that sometimes those kids lost parts of their arm or their hands. The March of the Children that came out of Philadelphia, right, out of the textile mills. Because those children were forced to work long hours kind of inhaling things that was going to destroy them for, destroy their lungs and respiratory systems for the rest of their lives. We said no. We said democracy requires education, and we want to make sure that all these kids have an education. And we want to make sure that these kids are not just going to be sent to their doom. We believe that they have the right to live. A shot. Right? That's why this stuff, I mean, I swear to God, you just, you just, you scratch at the surface, right, about what this kind of like parental rights nonsense is all about, right? You just get, you start posing these kind of scenarios. Well, what do you mean? What are you talking about here? Just because you as a parent have a say in your child's education does not mean you get to dictate to the rest of us. And matter of fact, to flip that around, just because some loudmouth is showing up to like, uh, you know, up to these meetings or is on a school board saying that we have parental rights, right? Doesn't mean that we have to accept of their view of what public schools should be, of what our institution should be, what our laws should be. We can recognize them as the dinosaurs and Neanderthals that they are. Okay. We hear it. You want to be racist. Gotcha. Sorry. This is a democratic society in which racism. We want to eliminate racism. We want to respect the humanity of every kid. Right? You believe that God has two there's only two genders and sexes that everybody else should be destroyed or forced into some re-education camp? Okay, I hear that. That's some kind of crazy 1984 shit to me, but okay, that's your deal. That's not what we do here in the school. We respect everybody. We teach everybody. We make sure that there is space for this. And we are going to be constantly vigilant and critical about our histories to make sure that we don't inadvertently discriminate against somebody just because we don't understand just because they might have a different angle on things. No. You know, this is the, you know, I, you know, I taught this class this semester and it's, you know, it's not the first time I've taught it, but uh, it's probably one of the best times I've taught it, I think. 
And, you know, we talk about that, the rise of demagoguery, right? We talk about the difference between demagoguery and democracy. We read this book, you know, we've had her on the show talking about her book, uh, Patricia Roberts Miller. We've had her on this show talking about her book, uh, Demagoguery and Democracy, right? And there's a big difference, right? There's one thing we always got to get our, our wrap our heads around. Like there's this weird kind of like slippery slope, if you will. It's not the right word for it, but it's kind of like we get ourselves in kind of like intellectual binds by saying things like, well, we have to, you know, we have to be accepting of everybody, right? We have to respect everybody, right? Everybody's got the right to their own opinion, all that other kind of stuff, right? But then we, we start having, you have opinions that are really problematic, like very racist ones, very violent ones, very kind of like believes that we should send our kids back to the mills, all those other kinds of stuff, Right that would roll back the gains, the democratic gains that people have fought for, right? And there's this kind of liberal tendency to then say like, oh, well, well, I guess they have an opinion too. And so then how do we accommodate that? That is not it. That is the wrong thing. There's a difference. Look, here's the, here's the difference, right? Say, for example, I might just take the issue of, of, of say, uh, of, uh, of trans kids, right? is that there could be a parent who could legitimately find out what's happening, right? Or hear about kind of um, uh, like transsexuals, right? And hear about kind of like kids um, kind of being trans and legitimately not understand that perspective, not understand where that comes from and be concerned about it, right? That's a, that concern, right? That lack of understanding, that kind of like thing that, that is jarring, that doesn't fit with your worldview. That's, that's a legitimate feeling, right? But then what happens with that feeling is the important part, right? The one line, the democratic, and I don't mean democratic party, I'm talking about, about democracy, right? The way we handle that in a democracy, right, is we pause and we try to understand, right? We recognize our own reaction as our reaction. And we recognize that there is something that we are unfamiliar with. And so we try to learn about it, try to understand it, right? And we listen to people like experts, we listen to the history. We listen to those discussions to try to understand what's happening here, right? If, if, you, if you ever listen to parents who have trans kids talk about their own internal processes, right? Um, I should say those parents who have accepted their trans kids, right? Or have gone through that, right? Or are, who are now advocates for their kids, they talk about coming to terms with this, right? And coming to terms with it doesn't mean to say like, you know, accepting something you disagree with, but just kind of like being kind of taken by surprise by something that it was not in their worldview. And then helping to understand it. And, and what, what, what allows them so often to, to, to do that work of, of working to understand working to try to really make sure. Because look, if you're a parent who has no idea about kind of 
how that stuff works, right? You know, what, what kind of, what, why is it a trans? If you think you might, might worry, is the kid have, you know, is, is a the kid have, um, uh, is there, have issues with their mental health, right? Is do they need to get help? Is it a psychological issue or something like this that we need to kind of like work on this? Did something happen to them that, you know, those are things that go through parents' minds. And that's also all legitimate kind of concerns to have, which is why you seek out people to talk to them, right? People who know better than you do about it. And that's what those parents do. And they do the work because they love their kids. Right? They do the work because they want that relationship with their, their kid more than ever. They do the work because they recognize the most important thing to do is to maintain that, that solid relationship, that loving relationship. And it might be emotionally painful for them because of, depending on whatever their kind of like personal convictions or commitments or religious backgrounds are and things like that, it might be that, you know, it might be difficult for them if it goes along, but they get through it because they love their kid. Right now, I think it's a, a bit kind of idealistic to believe that we could somehow kind of love our neighbors in that way, right? Love people, you know, the famous line from like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez during the Bernie campaign, right? You know, are you willing to fight for someone you don't know? Right? I think it's a little bit idealistic to believe that we can all just, we all just going to get there, you know, tomorrow. But there is a certain degree of that, a kind of a more, if you want to call it like a secular, secular is the wrong word, but something that's a little bit more generalizable than just kind of, you know, your kid, loving your kid. But that attitude of saying, we have things that come up that we're that we're having a reaction to to basically own our own reactions to try to understand where the reaction's coming from. And then to care enough about if we're talking about schools, the kids, right? Talking about these labor laws, these kids, to understand where they're coming from, understand the context around it, and making sure that we're doing the best that we can um, to foster this kind of like environment of democracy and growth and freedom and all this other kind of stuff, right? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. But this kind of mental gymnastics that happens sometimes is that you believe that you have to tolerate everybody. So the difference is, what I just was going through there, is this is democratic impulse, right? The, the impulse of democracy is to try to understand because you want to make sure that that people are taken care of, that they're kind of included, right? Um, and that we have the opportunity to grow ourselves, right? On the other side of things, like you have the anti-trans stuff, right? If you're in a liberal framework, you know, the liberal meaning kind of like, oh, you know, everybody's got their own opinion and uh, you know, we'll agree to disagree and that kind of stuff. The other one is like, say, well, we have to expect their, respect their opinion too because it's an opinion, right? Freedom of speech, blah, blah, blah. But the anti-trans person, right? What we're seeing in the kind of, uh, you know, in schools today, their goal is not simply to just say, well, no, I just want to, I'm going to raise my kid in a different way. That's not their goal. The goal is to destroy the trans person. Right? The goal is suppression of other people. Right? We can argue about whether they even have the right to suppress and exploit or kind of abuse their own children. I certainly don't think that's okay. If they want to destroy their, their, their kids' psychological well-being, I guess it's within their parental rights. But that, when they start to say, okay, this is, this is me, now I want to destroy anyone. I want to suppress anyone 
who disagrees with me. That is an anti-democratic impulse. That is one that runs the line of demagoguery, not democracy. That's the distinction. Our schools should not foster discourses and practices that support demagoguery. They should do the ones that support democracy. So, anyways, that was a little tangent. I didn't plan on going on today, but it's really driving me crazy. Well, and that goes right into, like, what had happened here. The Freedom Foundation, right, is holding a conference in uh, December this July. Um, we're going to have to see if we can get somebody on to talk about the Freedom Foundation uh, and that conference. Uh, I just want to flag it for people. I did kind of uh, – I've mentioned this once already, but um, I just want to bring it up for you real quick. Uh, I had it flagged here, and then I might manage to – so this Freedom Foundation, they're having, a, they're calling it the Teacher Freedom Summit, right? Uh, the title of it is Conquering Mountains in Denver, Colorado, right? And so this is this is kind of what it is. Now this is this is where we start getting into explicitly. God, that looks like our okay explicitly uh, anti-union stuff. So this is what it says. To prepare teachers to combat the radical political agenda of the teachers' unions, the Freedom Foundation is hosting a first-of-its-kind teachers' conference July 10th through the 12th, 2023, in Denver for public school teachers around the country. Thanks to the generosity of the Freedom Foundation's amazing supporters, this groundbreaking conference will be an all-expenses-covered for public school teachers. Conference attendees will enjoy an amazing lineup of speakers and panels with airfare, hotel accommodations, and dinners all covered by the Freedom Foundation. Spots are filling up fast. Don't miss the opportunity to join teachers. If you are a public school teacher and want to participate, here's how you apply. And they give you an application. I said, so what is going to be covered? Janice writes. Janice writes the Supreme Court decision that took away, um, took away, uh, um, um, Union's ability to collect agency fees, right, which is basically like, you know, like fair share dues, right? Um, we've talked about that before. They say, quote, lie versus the truth about unions and their members, that unions tell their members, how to help your colleagues leave the union, learn about alternative options to joining a union, getting involved with your community, fighting for your, your curriculum, how to push back against CRT, sexually explicit material, and more, breakout sessions based on grade level, discuss issues relevant to your classroom, Right, they can earn um, PD and CET, CEC credits for this, and meet like-minded teachers. So they're going all in, and I've been talking about this. Right, I've been talking about this for the past year. This is the next stage, right? The next stage. Was, I mean, again, this is never this has never gone away. They're going after this. But if you remember, this is happening in Souderton right now. This is happening in the Souderton School District, where there has been a kind of anti, like a union alternative organization that has been formed, right? That's all framed in the language of freedom and teacher choice and all this stuff. But it, at its core is what it is, is an anti-union campaign, right? If you are involved with unions, again, we, you know, we don't have union density in the way that we used to. There used to be, you know, union, because when unions, there were more people belong to unions, there were more people who understood what this was, right? They could recognize the calling cards of the anti-union push, Right of the the bosses attempting to break unions so that they can control us more. Right, I mean 
that used to be co more common knowledge, right? But here it is coming right at us. And so that's happening in the Souderton School District. And we've seen this um, kind of come up in some, uh, some other school districts as well, which I'm not going to talk so much about quite yet. Um, so this is something to uh, pay attention to. So, uh, you know, I'm going to be looking around for as we get somebody to come on and talk about like who these people are, the Freedom Foundation, uh, what this conference is all about and what this agenda is. Um, but I just wanted to flag that for you. Um, this week, big week of this week, PA House passed the bill that would add LGBTQ protect protections to the state's non-discrimination law. That's pretty awesome. Um, this uh, now, again, this is, uh, you know, Josh Shapiro has already said that he'll sign it. Uh, it's passed the House. It is now going to go to the Senate. Um, I should double check, you know, just I always do this so like, you know, um, PA. Yeah, there's a, you know, it's as you would expect when, you know, a bill like this gets passed and the supporters are going to say, look, they're still optimistic of going to the Senate. Now the Senate is still um, uh, Republican controlled. Republicans have historically been against this bill. Um, but, you know, you never know. There's a shot. Depends on what kind of pressure is going to be brought forward. Um, let me see if I can give you a quick comment on it. So it says the measure now heads to the GOP controlled Senate. This is from what? Uh, Penn Live. Uh, GOP-controlled Senate with some proponents expressing optimism Tuesday that the bill could clear that chamber as well as uh, Governor Josh Shapiro has voiced support for the bill. Right. So this bill, it's called HB 300. It amends the Pennsylvania Human Relations Act, which governs the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission, the body that investigates and adjudicates complaints of discrimination in housing, employment, public services. The commission can levy fines and refer cases to court for further resolution. In addition to race, religion, and other attributes listed in the current law, HB 300 would add sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, or expression to the list of the prohibited types of discrimination. Right? So we're going to see where it goes. Right? Now, some of these protections do exist within um, Pennsylvania, um, but it's pretty scattershot. Um, there are some strong protections for LGBTQ rights and, uh, and against LGBTQ discrimination, um, but it's like in particular municipalities or cities. This would actually make it um, across the entire Commonwealth. So that's a big, it's a big deal. So you had, um, um, you know, um, uh, Malcolm Kenyatta and Jessica Benham have been kind of out in front on this one and have, have been just phenomenal in their work, um, especially to get this through. And, you know, look, everybody who got out there and voted, um, especially, you know, look, people here in Bucks County who helped flip seats in the state house to make sure that this state house is now it's been Democratic, um, Democratic uh, controlled by the Democratic Party um, for the first time in like, you know, like 15 years or something like this. Um, and after this big, huge kind of right wing takeover of the state house and we saw all the shenanigans that have been dominating our politics for the past decade. Um, now we're at a point where that's beginning to, we're beginning to see the work to take that back. And now this is what we can do when uh, you have a democratic control of the House. Does that mean that, uh, that, all, that all these Democrats in the House are just like good people and they're all good? No, no, no. But we have to keep up the pressure, certainly. Um, but it, this is also a perfect example of why elections matter, right? 
Um, as I mentioned too, as well, Moms for Liberty is holding her conference in Philadelphia this summer. Um, we have to watch this one closely. Uh, again, I think this is something we're going to be reaching out, looking for more guests to be uh, really just hammering down who these people are, what Moms for Liberty is up to in the state, and so on. Um, and I found this little thing this, uh, that the president of Thomas Jefferson Hospital, um, Mark uh, Tykosinski, um, basically has has for the past few years, he's you know been liking tweets that question the science behind COVID, questioning the vaccines, questioning max masking. And um, basically most recently our had, had liked a tweet that called gender reassignment, surgery, child mutilation. Um, so uh, what's, what's interesting about this too, as well is uh, you know, he's been criticized by um, the, who's one of the, the CEO of Thomas Jefferson hospital said he was really disappointed in uh, uh, President Mark uh, Tykosinski's careless use of his Twitter account, uh, where he liked this stuff. Um, and he issued an, an apology. He said, I usually just do this just to bookmark it. Uh, and, uh, you know, those 30 tweets that I liked this past year are, are, you know, about, you know, COVID being bunk and all that stuff. I was just bookmarking it, right? I lack... I, it's my lack of understanding of how liking a tweet is impl implied endorsement, right? Because he does it with his, his person, you know, his, he's got his full title of the hospital and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but here, this is the, the key part, right? So they talked to uh, Jessa Lingle, right, who's an associate professor of communication and gender, sexuality, and women's studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She was quite critical of uh, Tycho Sinski's response um, to being asked by the inquirer if he thought transgender surgery was, quote, child mutilation. His answer should have been an unequivocal no, she said. Instead, he told the entire inquirer, quote, this is not my clinical area of expertise. In general, any issue involving children should be referred to a clinical experts at children's hospitals who offer. That's just double talk. Lingle said, quote, you shouldn't need specialized understanding in pediatric care to recognize that trans-affirming care is simply part of health care and part of well-being, she said. It's not a radical stance to say that trans-affirming care is not mutilation to children or anybody. Right? Exactly. So uh, here we go. Uh, president of a hospital is uh, now in a little bit of a hot water. So I don't know. Good as far as I'm concerned. I'm glad that they shone a light on it. Last thing I want to mention today is that uh, people may have seen this is that uh, Jeffrey Hinton was the trailblazer is a trailblazer in artificial intelligence work. Uh, he worked for Google. Uh, he is basically just left Google so that he can speak out uh, against uh, what's happening with AI. You know, he's been referred to as the godfather of AI. Um. And it's it's nuanced, right? So it was like, so let me just read you a little bit. This is from NBC News. So Jeffrey Hinton, a trailblazer in artificial intelligence, has joined the growing list of experts sharing their concern about the rapid advancement of artificial intelligence. The renowned computer scientist recently left his job at Google to speak openly about his worries about the technology and where he sees it going. Quote, it is hard to see how you can prevent the bad actors from using it for bad things. Unquote. Hinton said in an interview with the New York Times. Hinton is worried that future versions of the technology posed a real threat to humanity. Quote, the idea that this stuff could actually get people, um, actually get people, get smarter than people. A few people believe, uh, he said, a few people believe that, he said in the interview, but most thought it was way off. And I thought it was way off. 
I thought it was 30 or 40, 50 years or even longer. Obviously, I no longer think that. Unquote. He's now 75 and is most noted for the rapid development of a deep learning, which uses mathematical structures called neural networks to pull patterns out of massive, from massive data sets. Like other experts, he believes that a race between big tech to develop more powerful AI will only escalate the global race. And he tweeted on Monday morning that he felt that Google had acted responsibly. Of course, he's saying that. Um, but now he's, you know, he's, he's basically concerned. Right. Um, Tristan Harris, uh, who's one of the founders of the Center for Humane Technology, um, uh, he also went on to write, um, quote, this is Tristan Harris, what we want is an AI that enriches our lives, AI that works for people, that works for human benefit, that is that helping us cure cancer and is helping us find climate solutions, he said during an interview. We can do that. We can have AI and research labs that's applied to specific applications and does advance in those areas. But when we're in an arms race to deploy AI to every human being on the planet as fast as possible, little testing as possible, that's not an equation that is going to end well, right? And that's the thing that leads you in the direction, leads me at least in the direction where every kind of dystopian science fiction <laughs> when the machine takes over. Um, but, you know, the whole idea there is that, uh, that you have even some of these major AI people that are coming out and saying, watch it, you know, we're all going to die. I'm glad the end of the world is working out well for someone. Yeah. Or to put it in the words of uh, Chancellor Dan Greenstein, our future might look like this. It's like being on this uh moving sidewalk which doesn't stop yeah there you go moving sidewalk that doesn't stop that's what i feel like i'm on right this moment all right everybody that's going to do it for me today uh thank you for sticking with us i hope you're going to enjoy some of the uh the sunshine while it lasts uh we'll see how long it lasts and um i look forward to uh talking to you soon i want to remind you once again that uh this coming monday at 7 p.m um i am welcoming Mark Engler to the show. Mark's a Philly-based writer and author of This is an Uprising, uh, How Nonviolent Revolt is Shaping the 21st Century. And we're going to be talking about his article, um, most recently published in Dissent, called Can Movements Keep Politicians from Inevitably Selling Out? Good question. Timely as we uh, head on into major election season and organizing. All right, everybody, uh, I'm going to call it a day and get to my grading, I guess. Uh, I hope you all doing well. I wish you a fantastic weekend. And uh, the primaries are right around the corner, so fingers crossed. Let's keep it up. See ya!